0: Hello, and thank you for joining us. I'm Joanne Guo. And I'm Sarah Gerber. We are the co-hosts of the Track Two podcast. The
1: Track Two podcast explores the stories and people who create conditions for a thriving, vibrant society.
0: This season, we bring you the voices of stakeholders who help shape
1: philanthropy. Today, we're in conversation with Raj Joshi, a community organizer, economist, and activist. Raj is the founder of Bridging Ventures, a nonprofit cultivating pioneering leaders and galvanizing a team of strategists, storytellers, and thinkers towards a regenerative future. He's a former managing director and founding member of the B Team, a not-for-profit initiative formed by a global group of business leaders.
0: Raj is an executive in residence at the Oxford Syed Business School, an advisory council member to the ownership project which investigates how ownership influences businesses and the communities in which they operate.
1: Recently, Raj served as special advisor to Mission 2020, a global climate initiative convened by Christiana Figueres, chief architect of the Paris Climate Agreement. He is a board member of the Centre for Scottish Public Policy. He served two terms as chair of the Scottish Youth Parliament as its first minority ethnic leader.
0: Raj holds a BA from Strathclyde Business School in Economics and a Master's in Public Policy and Administration from the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University.
2: Philanthropy is a term that we've kind of ascribed to a particular type of giving, which is when one accumulates a significant amount of capital through the market, through capitalism, where ultimately what happens is capital seems to accumulate in the capital market in a way that doesn't necessarily share value as fairly as it should. And ultimately, if we want to build a good society, what we, what we want to do is find a way for resources to flow to where they're most needed.
0: Raj, thank you so much for being here today. We're looking forward to this conversation.
2: Thanks for having me. It's lovely to be here.
0: So I want to start out with the question we're asking everyone this season, which is, When did philanthropy enter your story or your journey?
2: I think for me, philanthropy entered my journey as a concept that I stumbled upon as an economist when I was very young in Scotland, and I was reading about a Scottish man named Andrew Carnegie who I understood was one of the early philanthropists who spent a lot of his money building libraries because he believed education was something that should be a public good. Mm. I always believed in the concept of giving. If I was to go even earlier than that, my earliest exposure to the concept of giving was in fact at church as a child. Mm. And I remember seeing there was always an offering plate and you would always try to give what you had. I learned later that my parents would give 10% of everything that they had and more as well. So I never met my grandparents. In those days, people did not live long, right? Particularly in the conditions that people were growing up in, in extreme poverty. My grandfather left India at the age of 12 on a steamboat bound for Africa because he was told that he would find a job. And up until that point, he'd been working, helping to sell peanuts, roasting peanuts, and was only making enough money for a glass of, what's called uh, chas in India. It's a yogurt, but diluted with water, basically, and a piece of bread. And so he was in the best shape, but he wanted to get a job to help his mum, to be able to send money back for his mum. And so he left India at the age of 12 and managed to get a ticket onto a steamboat bound for Kenya. And he only had two what are called chapatis, which are these little pieces of Indian bread, which had gone rotten by about three days into the trip. And a stranger saw that he wasn't looking good and they asked him, do you need some food? And he said, no, no, I'm okay." because he wanted to be respectful. He said that, you know, he didn't have any money, obviously. And so someone said that he has no money. That's why he's saying he's okay, but he doesn't have any money. And the stranger said to him, from this day on, you will eat and paid for the rest of the food until they got to Kenya, which is where my parents were born. And if it weren't for that stranger, I might not be here. And that stranger may not have been super wealthy, but he gave from his own pocket something because he saw a need and he saw a child that wasn't eating and that he could help. And so many times we walk past children and we walk past people in the streets and we close off to it. But when I think back through history, I think, gosh, how much might the smallest part of us that is giving send a ripple through time and create the opportunity for someone to do something that might chase the court, change the course of history. Mm. And so for me, that in, in, in essence, that is philanthropy. That was philanthropy in our family. That was at least the, the beginning of appreciation for giving and, and their sacred nature of giving something about giving that, that is in all spiritual traditions, there is this notion that you give, even if you have little. And in fact, often it's those with little that give more than those mm. with a lot. Mm. And, and and in everywhere I've traveled to, I've actually found that in the poorest communities, I'm welcomed more. They feed me more. They give me space. And I've, I've sat at tables with the richest people in the world. And, you know, sometimes it's a different story. And I'm not saying mm. that, 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 that rich people don't give, but I, and there are some rich people who are, are incredibly giving, but I, I do say that I think it was very, it's been very sobering for me that the best philanthropy on this world, on the planet, for me, is happening in the poorest parts of the world,
3: mm.
2: by the poorest people in the world.
1: Thank you for sharing that story with us.
0: Yeah,
2: I have a tape somewhere where my grandfather like, told the story and then my mom's trying to transcribe it for me <laughs> but
0: like, oh that's yeah. amazing that was exactly what i was hoping for too because i feel like in the conversations we've been having with our guests it's so powerful to have the personal context and like joanne mentioned the lived experience that can then provide so much more texture to the higher level concepts that we explore as well in each one of these conversations that are also really valuable But in an exploration on civil society, it's the people in our lived experience that play a big role in understanding these things.
2: Yeah, and I then started to believe, and I believe now that we need to live in a world where we give more than we receive, and that we've lived too long in a world where we take more than we give, and that the extractive nature of our society, which is built upon principles of greed, of competing and consuming are, in fact, what's creating many of the symptoms we're seeing around us of climate breakdown, of mass inequality, of gender injustice, violence and human rights abuse. And that we need to shift to a paradigm of cooperate, to conserve and, in fact, to regenerate. And that this regenerative future that many of us have been working to seed as a concept is really built upon the principle that we have the capacity as human beings to give more than we take. And and so giving philanthropy for me, it's also something that needs to become a very personal act, whether it's giving blood or whether it's giving a billion dollars that you shouldn't have received in the first place because the market's not designed in the right way to share fairly the value that gets created. It's a principle and it's universal. Mm. In a world with a preponderance of problems and a confluence of crises, the pandemic, the climate crisis, inequality, everything that we're seeing around us, my fear And and what I would really love to see addressed is that philanthropy is not being used as our highest risk asset. In fact, in some ways, philanthropy has become attached to ego. It's become attached more to giving so that you can create a public relations opportunity to see progress, but not necessarily link where that progress is linked to real change. We've got to find a way of disconnecting capital that's there and other forms of resources that are there to help our stewardship of the future from the human material need to see ourselves succeed, to see ourselves affiliate and associate with dimensions of success that have been created and that we are instilled with, which are not necessarily perhaps what what we need in terms of defining success for the future.
1: Mm. Raj, I was just hoping you could clarify a bit. Who we is, when you refer to we mm. need to give more than we receive, because it can be confusing in the US where people are drowning in student loan debt and barely able to get by and inequality is significant.
2: Well, I believe that we all have the capacity to give, even if we have very little We can look back through history. There are people who gave their lives. I don't think that giving your life is necessarily the right way to go. One of my mentors who was the head of the the youth wing of the ANC and then eventually the head of Greenpeace and Amnesty International, he once said to me that it's important to not just to give your life, but to give the rest of your life. And that was, for me, quite a profound story. And learning for me in activism was this notion that part of what you're giving is your rest of your life.
1: What I'm hearing you describe is more the concept of engagement and service and less about money, but Mm. it was a difficult point coming off of Carnegie because it Mm. sounded like it was about giving more than we receive.
0: I'm also interested in the giving part and defining the giving as well, because coming from the framework of Carnegie and early philanthropy, that was one version of giving, financial giving. But obviously, there's lots of different ways of giving.
2: Yeah, I'm staying at a very principled level of philanthropy right now because Mm -hmm. I've just come from completing a very detailed report on the future of climate action. And there are so many levels to this that one can Mm -hmm. get into in terms of why philanthropy is and is not working and what can change to improve philanthropy. And should we even have philanthropy? (laughs) However, I, to your question, I think that giving is something which is a universal concept. It's the principle of giving and that philanthropy is a term that we've kind of ascribed to a particular type of giving, which is when one accumulates a significant amount of capital through the market, through capitalism, where ultimately what happens is capital seems to accumulate in the capital market in a way that doesn't necessarily share value as fairly as it should. And as John Rawls posited, there are distributional effects with capitalism which Thomas Piketty and others have rightly determined that we are at a stage right now where those distributional effects are unsustainable, where the levels of inequalities that we're seeing in the world are not only holding us back in in many ways from solving problems, but are causing suffering. They've made it impossible for many groups to survive and thrive and to kind of see opportunity. In fact, we're not talking just about increasing opportunity for a few We're talking about the majority, the vast majority, if not 90% of people being unable to grow. And and I saw a study recently that said there were 176 million people in the United States of America who were struggling to find any access to financial capital to get their own home, to put themselves through education, to Mm -hmm. enable their children to go to school. So we're talking here about the lack of financial mobility and social mobility One of my fears is that philanthropy is currently being used to patch up the plumbing in a system where ultimately the plumbing itself needs to be redesigned. And I'm not saying we should throw the baby out with the bathwater by any means, because I I do believe that markets are the best way to organise economic activity. There are many principles in economics that make a lot of scientific sense and are logical and rational. But we also know that there are market failures, that externalities are not being properly managed that governments are not playing a role in regulating markets and that part of the reason that they're not playing the role is that there is corporate capture and lobbying and corporates have received rights of personhood and have been able to, using litigation and other means, create evasion of some of the rules and kind of warp the rules. Many of the incentive structures are actually falling away. I do think that we are at a tipping point and that philanthropy really needs to rethink how it galvanizes and catalyzes the kind of shift and transformation we need if we are to see significant progress in this decisive decade on climate change, on tackling inequality and addressing human rights and responsibilities.
0: Mm. That's a helpful, helpful framing of the relationship between these two big systems, and I'm kind of following on that thread, curious if you think where some of this like shift in structure that's needed for a sustainable system is that coming from philanthropy? Is it coming from other, other sources? Is it a mixture of the two? I'm sort of mostly curious about where philanthropy then plays a role in moving towards that more sustainable system.
2: I think that philanthropy is already waking up to this reality to some extent. I think there are leaders there are some foundations that are clearly aware that capitalism is only going to take us so far in its current form. And that, in fact, we're not talking about rearranging the deck chairs anymore, we're talking about real shifts that need to be made. And that's coming from companies too. We're starting to see companies and investors really acknowledge that the financial bottom line is not the only thing to be looking at, and that the environmental and the social impact is equally, if not more, critical for us to measure the true value that company creates in society. In terms of true value accounting, as that happens, you'll start to also see potentially a reflection in profits and a reflection, therefore, in how much capital is available for philanthropic causes. What I'm seeing is foundations are beginning to look at systemic change, systemic risk, Even the approach that is being taken to addressing climate change, you're starting to see foundations recognise that you've got to start shifting the financial sector and investing in shifting behaviours, attitudes, beliefs and effectively decision making criteria that govern how financial decisions are made in the financial sector, whether that's through the task force on climate related financial disclosure or whether that's through the ESG framework, the environmental social and governance framework that investors look at in making investment decisions. And more and more family offices we're learning are, are really looking at taking decisions based on that data. I don't think we have enough data too. I think there's there's still a lot of confusion around ESG, but certainly at Oxford, there's there's been a lot of really good work done by the ownership project, which has been analysing how different families are managing issues around ESG. And also looking at the fact that some publicly listed companies are performing better on ESG And why is it that we see this differential? I think philanthropy is starting to engage in that space a little bit and looking at what is the architecture of a new economic system. I don't think it's investing enough in building bridges between the academic world, which is thinking through what that architecture needs to look like, the policy world, which is trying to figure out how can that be translated from theory to practice in terms of new regulations, new rule sets civil society in terms of the role that it should and must play as an accountability mechanism that is able to ensure that commitments and pledges are met and promises are fulfilled, but at the same time that consumers' voices are heard within a lot of these discussions and debates, and at the same time working in in convening and and investing in the multi-stakeholder partnerships. I mean, to be honest, the biggest risk is as philanthropy has in some places been quite politicized, right, Where, Mm -hmm. where there's Those who fund on the left and those who fund on the right, it plays into a future which doesn't necessarily help us in solving the problem. Because ultimately, we're looking at a reality where what we need to do in a very short period of time is drive the transformation of multiple industries across lots of sectors within each of those industries and across multiple jurisdictions, which are all at different stages of development. And in order to do that, we all need to get around the same table and say, okay, what do people want to see? How can in- investors incentivize the shifts in behavior amongst the companies themselves? Because, for example, some of the world's most progressive CEOs who have been really pushing some of these agendas and trying to be good global citizens, losing their roles as CEOs of you know, companies like Danone, for example, which was all- always lifted up as the, one of the world's first benefit corporations. And currently, I think we have a scenario where it- there's an accountability deficit it's not being fulfilled by governments and it's not being fulfilled by civil society. And, so, and civil society is not being resourced to play that neutral role as an intelligent convener, as a sense maker, as a knowledge broker and as a detergent in a way that can wash away corruption.
1: Is it fair to say that what you're advocating is reform philanthropy?
2: Yeah, I, I believe that it's time for significant reform in how philanthropic giving is conducted. Mm -hmm. I think we need to go through a process of dialogue. I think we need to create space for philanthropists to sit in the same room as activists and economists and investors, business leaders, and to really speak about how this highest risk form of capital that we've got can help us to solve problems. You know, we shouldn't go near money that perhaps wasn't made in the right way. But at the same time, every single form of philanthropy that you look at has come from a source that was made out of a market system that isn't functioning effectively. And so then you start thinking, well, how do we make sure that any money that is coming in has the best impact it possibly can in helping us to transform our system?
1: That is definitely a part of the solution. But if we're talking about reform philanthropy, then it has to be grounded in something. And I think you're just on the tip of telling me what that is. And so I'd like to encourage you to go that route. Tell me about what the grounding is, aside from having this dialogue. What are we asking people to rally around? And when I say people, I do mean the philanthropists. There has to be something that they have a vision they're working toward.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I believe at my core that philanthropy has to seriously invest in redesigning system. And that means investing in the intellectual work that needs to go into designing new rules. That means Investing in testing out and piloting new programs. That means challenging existing institutional paradigms. That means divesting from forms of and theories of change, which for a long period of time we've started to see is no longer working. And the hard truth is that even we, as civil society or as economists and others, we have to acknowledge that we are part of the problem too. We are perpetuating systems where people are campaigning per diem or whatever it might be. And ultimately, if we want to build a good society, what we, what we want to do is find a way for resources to flow to where they're most needed. For example, if you take universal social protection floors. In 2005, when I was a young activist on the streets of Edinburgh, putting white placards down in Murrayfield Stadium and joining and forming the Global Call to Action Against Poverty Inspired by the words of Nelson Mandela in Trafalgar Square, where he said, this global call to action against poverty should take its place in the movement of peoples throughout history. Sometimes it falls upon a generation to be great. You can be that generation. Let's make poverty history. And 15 years later, we're still living in a world where there are levels of poverty which are obscene for the the kind of technology, the tools, the capacity we have in our society we have the ability to feed the world. We have the ability to clothe the world. We have the ability to make sure that everyone has access to a vaccine and we're still squabbling over which country gets which vaccine while half the world doesn't even know if it's going to get access because the patents aren't being agreed. On a principle level, some things are seriously you know, not right with how we prioritize things and what we get done. I think the basis of the great recovery has to be to leave no one behind. I think the promise at the heart of the Sustainable Development Goals that gets missed in the list of 17 and 169 targets is that sentence at the very end that every single country in the world agreed to, which was to leave no one behind. And actually, what's happened in the last five years, six years since we've gone forward is we're leaving more and more people behind we are seeing the greatest concentration and acceleration of wealth than we've ever seen before. And no one is controlling that. And I think the fact that philanthropy is growing so fast is an indicator. And actually, philanthropy has a role in a way to also ensure that philanthropy doesn't continue in the way that it's continued. So it's it's like we all have to make sure that wealth is being distributed fairly, that there are minimum social protection floors, so everyone gets access to a decent job, a decent wage, a pension, and and actually we have the ability to design a system that can do these things. And then how we get there, the means also has to justify the ends. We have to get there by building an economy that lives within the boundaries set by nature. Um, it needs to be a just transition, and it needs to be delivered through materials that don't harm nature. And and actually philanthropy can help us solve these problems, but if we continue to see this false trade-off between people and planet and we don't see climate change as an an issue of human survival, then I think we we lose the point a little bit, and we have a risk that we're going to lose the the movements that have been working together on this for for so long.
1: So you said a lot there, and I think there's many, many more ways that Sarah can take this, but I want to kind of tie up this concept of philanthropic reform. And what I heard you saying is that part of your vision is reforms that are grounded in the rights and the power of communities. In the rights of people. I did hear you say personal responsibility, but I have a lot of trouble believing that people who are most vulnerable in this have a tremendous responsibility beyond getting themselves to the next right step. But but there are gatekeepers and facilitators along the way. And so I believe everyone needs to participate as a willing participant to apply their strengths. But what I'm really hearing, I'll if we were to me. distill this down, <laughs> yeah. is a reform grounded in human rights.
2: Mm. yeah let me tell you like i am struggling right now as an activist right i'm trying to raise resources for a theory of change which is about driving transformation and creating a more regenerative future and i have some support but that support also comes with a political agenda Mm -hmm. and some funders are better than others but activists should feel like they're In partnership, where donors are helping enable them to fulfill their visions and understand what are the barriers to transformation. Rather than as activists, we feel this often this pressure to show results in the short term and create some bright, shiny object that the program officer has an ability to flag up the poll to say, Oh, my grant is doing really well. Right. But, you know, if you were to ask me in 2015, We had not a lot of money at all, or we didn't use money for this, but in Davos, some of the climate leaders came to us and said, the climate negotiations aren't looking great. We're 12 months out. There's no clear market signal in the negotiating text. And we think business leaders could help. And this was me sitting in a place where I was able to help support and facilitate conversations amongst business leaders. And so I said, well, why don't you come in and talk to us about this? Share the science and share what the political situation is. And effectively, what we heard in that space, and this was not funded, was we needed a long-term goal to phase out greenhouse gas emissions by the middle of the century, to which a business leader said, okay, so the metric is 2050. And another one said, or 2030, if we can get there. And then a bunch of companies published their goal to get there by 2030. And I think that actually was probably one of the contributions to a growing movement of people that were working together to ensure that Paris delivered on three things, really. And I don't know how much funding we had for that. It was more like there was trust. It was like there was trust that you could work together to get to a positive outcome and to build the right framing narrative that spoke to what people wanted on the ground and created the right policy context and the right market signals that would enable the economy to start shifting in that direction, which we are already seeing that shift happen. I'm juxtaposing that with now and I'm like trying to figure out how do we transform. But at the same time, you're living in a world where there's more division. There's more of an appetite for civil society to be funded, to hold the companies accountable and make noise. And noise doesn't necessarily translate into change. And so I think part of this approach is about knowing when to support different kinds of approaches And to give freedom to organizations to develop the capacities that that will enable them and link them up as well. One of the things that philanthropy doesn't do very well is use its funding strategically to orchestrate. And it can actually be a really good orchestrator. By highlighting what's working, it can then also orchestrate and say, well, we're going to fund this. You want to do this. And there's this group of business organizations that we're also funding. We're going to put this in their grant agreement that they have to also work with you guys to help you all get to this common outcome so that you don't have to worry about convening or that each other's staff can get on a call with each other. And I'm getting into tactics here a little bit too much, but there's something here about a new approach to philanthropy, which funds transformation rather than funding constituencies to take particular positions. And that's not to say we shouldn't allow for philanthropy to still strengthen the voice of particular constituencies to be heard, because that still needs to happen. Mm. But I think that we need a greater balance of basically transformational philanthropy, which is a willingness to support corporate engagement, investor engagement for a civil society to be not in this position where they feel they're hamstrung because they're trying to raise money from the corporates actually, that should be paid for by philanthropy. So that discussion is taken out of the room altogether. It's like, no, the the space for you to meet is neutral and it's being paid for by philanthropy. And so from a power relationship perspective, there's a parity of esteem. And I often think that what happens in these relationships is business and in the investor community have greater power and they often physically, they'll own the space and the arena. And then civil society doesn't have much ownership in the arena. So I think philanthropy needs to be much more active in creating the neutral spaces, the arenas within which transformation can take place. And then, of course, there needs to be some resourcing for participation, but business has a role to show up in that because it's benefiting by transforming. It's going to innovate and it's going to be ahead of the curve and it's going to have a positive reputational benefit. So I think there's something here about how change happens and that we have to evolve a little bit in our understanding of how change happens. I'm not saying this applies universally. But I think it does apply to some of what needs to be done in the decisive decade on climate change, where we've got industries that need to change very quickly. And the way to do that is through collaboration and and moving from incremental to catalytic collaboration. And that's about a clear vision for where each industry wants to go, which we work on together. Uh, It's around building trust. And that happens through learning by doing. And it's through accountability and investing in and supporting civil society and other groups to ensure that those accountability mechanisms are there so it's not just commitments and promises that don't get fulfilled.
0: One of the things that's coming up for me is thinking about a shared vision for the future. What you're talking about is sort of very rapid transformation that's needed. We have these pressure points that are on the systems level, but I'm curious how we also account for the social dynamic of our time, and how to actually get people on the same page to have a shared vision of the future that can actually be the foundation for the kinds of transformational change we need.
2: Yeah, I believe that a vision is something that evolves and emerges through inspiration. I think you can only be inspired to see a vision. It's hard to force someone to see a vision, right? It it's, comes through a process of inspiration. For us, I think it's about how can we help people see that another world is possible and that world can be one that is more regenerative, that could be one that is more healing, that can be one where we are more connected, that can be one where there is less poverty, that might be one where we learn and are inspired by nature's model and that nature helps us to figure out what kinds of cities we want to build, what kinds of ways of living and being we want to embody. I think that the vision is sometimes about looking not just forward, but it's also about learning from history. What I've learned is that some of the happiest and most peaceful people on the planet don't live in steel glass towers and drive Teslas. And so there's an aspect of the vision, which is about how do we define success? For example, there's a lot of people who are questioning whether or not GDP is a sufficient measure of success and whether part of the problem is that we continue to base human progress on a metric that does not fulfill us at an individual level. Mm -hmm. And so to a certain level, financial stability is critical, but beyond a certain level, the incremental benefit is very, very limited. So for me, this vision is also about recognizing that our external world is but a reflection of our internal world. And therefore, people and the human spirit has been affected quite deeply by this crisis. And the way in which to increase the resilience of people and to raise the human spirit is through inspiration, through arts, through culture Mm -hmm. and through helping people to see and highlight examples of what's happening all over the world. And that there's a lot of positivity that will come from this that is actually already building resilience in our communities. And actually, I think there's a lot of learning going into how we cultivate leadership, how we educate the future of work. What is it that people really value? How do we feed ourselves? What kinds of food do we want to be putting into our our beings? And where does it come from? And what can we source locally? And so I think that this great acceleration of the pandemic, in a way, is, is potentially the biggest precipitant that we could ever have asked for, for the transformation that we need. And that philanthropy needs to seize this moment to convene, to bring together, to resource new ideas and and new forms of infrastructure and new ways of bringing people together and young people and support a slightly different approach and be okay with the fact that some of these approaches might not be about holding the system intact the way it's always been held, but maybe about participating in the system, but offering something different and saying we might want to organize slightly differently. We believe it's time perhaps to see philanthropy also invest in the people that conduct the activity through which it creates benefit. And I think there's a real question mark here around what will it take to sustain the transformers and the workers and the the different kinds of minds that need to help us in this moment at multiple levels. And can we redesign our economy so it meets the needs not just of the future, but also of the present, because we actually have to do this. We have to do this now. This generation needs to do this. We can't pass it to the next generation. We are the ones the pandemic was here to save, you could say.
1: <laughs> when you talk about philanthropy, sort of doing the self-care, and also you didn't put it in these words, but looking within about how nonprofits treat their own employees, you said workers. And, and I think that that's the differentiating point, is that we need to see our nonprofit leaders as workers, which means that they're not missionaries on a mission in some place far from home. You know, it's, it's, Some of this system, it, it comes from days gone by, maybe 100 mm-hmm. years mm-hmm. gone by, and it's also very gender imbalanced. And that often Mm -hmm. the executive leadership of a nonprofit is female. And I'm speaking for the United States. I mean, this is Mm. the context that I'm familiar with. And even the process of annual reviews and annual increases in something like a medical group where you, you mentioned nurses, nurses expect an annual compensation bump. They're doing their work and, you know, their performance is on par. And that's not true across the board in all nonprofit organizations. Mm -hmm. There are ceilings that are put into place that are rather arbitrary, but also about guilt and the fact that this work is charitable and Mm -hmm. they're stewarding donor funds. But the fact is, if you want exceptional performance of your nonprofit and your charity, you have to pay for that. Mm -hmm. You have to pay Mm -hmm. for exceptional leadership. But it's a real problem. It's a real problem in California, which has one of the largest groups of nonprofits in the whole country.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I I think it's a problem. And I think it's partly why the nonprofit sector doesn't see itself as a professional sector. Right. Right. And actually, it is just as professional and if not critical. And I'm even unsure of the word nonprofit, because I think it kind of implies not here to benefit or something like that. And I think it's why we've seen the rides, particularly of young people amongst entrepreneurs and creating social enterprises and B Corps. And I think that rather than the nonprofit sector facing that, it's kind of like hiding from the debate, which is really that we we just need sectors that are solving problems. And we need tax incentives that are structured appropriately to support the sectors that are working on the problems that are most acute in our society. Mm. And where there are exorbitant, profits being made in activities which are also harmful to people and planet we need incentive structures that are designed to do the opposite i don't think there's enough freedom for in- innovation and creativity so what i'm seeing is the best nonprofit leaders and the smartest minds just like can't collaborate in the way that they should be right now and what we really need right now is a slush fund that just says okay we're going to fund like individual activists and leaders to to create the new, like to go out and create the new things that are needed. Mm. And we're going to put significant pools of capital into doing that. And we're going to create a learning community of people that are practitioners of change and that are able to work across sector, cross sector athletes that are able to go in and net weave between fossil fuel companies and labour unions and consumer groups that are trying to figure out which energy providers to select and figure out how do you solve some of these problems? So I I just think that that there's an approach. There's some deep questions to ask. I I think it would be really interesting to do an inquiry into the future of civil society, but also Mm -hmm. an inquiry into the future of philanthropy, which is kind of looking at this in a much broader way. And so we need to find ways of of bringing all that together.
0: Mm. (laughs) Yeah. One of the key themes I'm hearing consistently in what you're saying is, being able to step back and see more holistic ecosystem type perspective on how all these things intersect. And that's coming from any of the various sectors that we've even mentioned, all of them having a more holistic view about how these various pieces intersect with each other. And one part of that is also looking at how those sectors are siloed in some ways. And it's kind of interesting to look at philanthropy in particular the origins of it, this is speaking a little bit to your comment on history, starting out with Carnegie, like there is a legacy there that still is present in how philanthropy operates. And one key part of that is its relationship to the market. And I think one of the interesting things you said in this last segment was, what if we didn't look at philanthropy as the current structure that it is, but as there are multiple sectors that are addressing the pressing problems over time? That distinction in of itself is pulling really quickly out of that legacy and moving into a different way of seeing things rather quickly. And if you do that and combine it also with innovation and creativity, you start getting a very different model, a very different way of even thinking about what philanthropy looks like. So your point about whether it's even called philanthropy or like whether it's something entirely different, but what's at the core is solving those same problems but allowing for a possibility that maybe we have outgrown the ways of solving it. And if that's the case, what is it going to take to actually shed some of that? And a lot of it is who's going to be bold enough to do it? Some people have to take risks to move in that new direction.
2: Yeah. And I would love to see some of the foundations being willing to take some of those risks and The quote that was in my mind there was coming to me was just, I remember also studying economics in Scotland, and Adam Smith, before he wrote Wealth of Nations, he wrote The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And in a way, that was really the basis in his mind, through observation for how human activity was evolving, and and what our behaviours were, and what would be driving the different kind of happenings that he was observing And he said, How selfish soever a man may be supposed, there are evidently some principles in his character that interest him in the fortunes of others and render their happiness necessary to him, though he gains nothing from it except the pleasure of seeing it. Mm. And... In a way, yes, he was talking about enlightened self-interest, but I think he was talking about love. He was talking about these other forces that exist, right? That science does not have an ability to describe in the same way. That there are connections, there are forces that have an impact on human behavior. The best philanthropists I've ever seen, they practice a form of philanthropy that's selfless giving. And it comes from a place of love. It comes from a place of wanting to bring joy to others. And there's a bit of self in there, but there's something also selfless about it. And so the purest form of philanthropy is when it comes from a place of love. We need to make sure that we don't lose the heart as we think about the head side of philanthropy. right? I think that there's a lot of work going into like systemic change and problem solving, and we can figure this out. But there's also part of the reason our world is so broken is that people don't feel loved or have the ability to love. And so how do we ensure that philanthropy is helping to create a world where more people feel loved? I also think that your question is a good one to pose, which is the legacy of philanthropy, the connotations that have been created with philanthropy as effectively, you make all your money over here and then you give it away and solve problems over there. Mm -hmm. That paradigm in and of itself is really what I'm getting at when I talk about the reform of philanthropy, because ultimately we're talking about market failure. And rather than dealing with it as a symptom, we need to deal with the cause of market failure and ensure that there are not such large variations in terms of distributional effects. We have to ensure when there is the production of a commodity, of a good or service, that the externalities the negative environmental impacts and social impacts are not so large that they then have to be offset by a philanthropic concept. And and, and so integrating more of the solution into the design of the market system and the economic system, in order to get that, philanthropy's got to invest in it because no one else is going to put the money into it and the governments need to invest in it too, but we've got to invest in changing the plumbing. That's ultimately the, the, the overall issue. Philanthropy should always be with us But there's a large portion of philanthropy which is currently being used to prop up the system in its current form rather than redesign the system. And I I have to say, like, there's more to the story, right? I have been through very difficult periods in my life. For example, I collapsed and had a seizure and then woke up and the people that were around me carried me through that. And it was strange. It was almost like spiritual energy that was appearing in faith not always knowing whether what you need will come and Mm -hmm. all of a sudden it would manifest and so what i found is there's something magical in it it's not something that i think philanthropy could be overly quantified and we lose the magic we lose the fact that giving comes from a place of intuition there's something intuitive within you you might even be like you're not meant to cross the street in that moment there's something about that person that you're meant to support And I've had that. Others feel feel that. And and it may be that you you are meant to help that person. It's it's within you to help that person in that moment. I think that there's something about the personal connection and the emotive connection between someone who is giving and someone who is receiving. And actually that giving and receiving are one and the same thing. Mm. That giving is receiving. And, And once people realize that giving is receiving, then philanthropy is not seen as a power relationship, as power over, but it's actually power with. It's power with the person to drive a particular change in, in which both are equal agents in mm-hmm. that change. And I think that's a paradigm shift that we need to try to get to.
0: Yeah. What I hear in that too is what you just mentioned was the sacred nature of giving. There's a sacredness, which is that magic. There's an energy there that is at the core of it that, like many things, gets lost in the layers of mm-hmm. systems and understanding and intellectualism that we put in all of the spaces because the sacred can also be a little scary sometimes too. Well, I know we're coming to the end of our time and just wanted to say thank you so much, Raj. We really appreciate you showing up with your full self and giving us your insights into this space and helping in this conversation we have of of casting a vision for what philanthropy can be. So thank you.
2: Well, I just want to say thank you to you both. Thank you for holding space. For this discussion and in fact helping me understand what my own thinking might be on some of these issues <laughs> and serving as a mirror because sometimes that is very valuable and actually i'm happy to do this anytime
0: mm, you. Okay. Bye. bye so one of raja's driving themes was around GDP and the design of the market, and how the market doesn't properly allocate or define value, which causes imbalances. And one of the ideas he posited was a good society is designed for resources to flow where there is need, which is an interesting framing for then looking at the very structure of philanthropy. And this is another one of his driving points, as if. You have a philanthropist with significant resources to give away that basically equates to a a failure of the market, that there's improper moving of resources to those who need it, which we've been trying to solve through the system of philanthropy. So philanthropy is a system often used to correct those imbalances. So as we look now at what's the future of philanthropy, how should it be designed? There is a lot of power in stepping back and looking at the market as a starting point for understanding the future of philanthropy and what what a good society looks like with a good form of philanthropy. I'm not sure that
1: you were really headed in this direction, but hearing you describe it in that way made me think about how he emphasized what philanthropy should be investing in. I'm not sure that he used the word investing But Mm -hmm. generally, philanthropic funding should go toward fill in the blank. And it was these big things that others are not going to invest in Mm -hmm. because, one, they're too risky or unproven, whatever that may be. And I thought that that was a refreshing perspective that he also backed up with saying that sometimes philanthropy is too married to quantitative data, not Mm -hmm. connected enough to the love of humanity, in essence, So, again, those were two really important points Mm -hmm. for me, just when I think about some of the pain points of how philanthropic investment flows and the relationship that nonprofits have with their donors, but more specifically, increasingly DAFs, Mm. where there isn't somebody making a decision or the decision that they're making is based on data and what you can show from the data, which means it's safe. (laughs) Mm. And he's saying no, no, we have this other thing that we need to work on, and that's this misalignment in values, going back to what you said, yeah. and how that relates to a, a couple of things. I mean, I think short-term profit yeah. and the balance of people and the planet.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when you step back and look at a larger systems approach or an ecosystems approach to where philanthropy can be a significant lever point in addressing the pressing problems of this particular moment. But more importantly, starting to future cast and future plan, which is what we really need, at a rapid rate because of acceleration of technology and acceleration of environmental catastrophe. So the the combination of those two quickly moving forces does, in a lot of ways, force the hand of these other sectors, be it philanthropy, government, or business. All of them need to be working at a more rapid rate. And the only way to do that really effectively is to do that in collaboration, which he also mentioned. That is the final SDG, number 17. But where can philanthropy be a leader in that? And I think that's where your investment point comes in. Where is philanthropy investing? And I think that's also where your point in the interview comes in around reform philanthropy.
1: Yeah, I think there's a couple of ways that we can go with that. One of the things you said, the need to respond rapidly, and then that hinging on these collaborations, partnerships of SDG 17. That's a tricky one because we can get on a slippery slope with CSR initiatives, especially if they're not genuine. And so Mm -hmm, I I think mm -hmm. one of the challenges is the frantic pace, the way like every opportunity is monetized and people are struggling to understand their place in the world. And that connects to his point of we need bold, innovative action. Philanthropy Mm. needs to be bold. And I do think that some of the larger foundations are doing this sort of coalition funding around Mm. a recognition that, okay, the system is greatly flawed and the best way for us to maximize this economic fallout is to put our heads together and our money into a fund but at the same time, I just don't think there's enough transparency into that for us as ordinary citizens to say, well, it's okay that you made that extra 10 billion right. um, because you're going to put it into this group fund and that's going to address these other inequities because it is a matter of sequencing and timing.
0: Mm-hmm. The money
1: does not always come out of those funds at the same rate that it goes in.
0: Yeah. Or that it's needed. Right. It's a
1: complex, like, structural, legal, cultural misalignment.
0: Yeah, especially when we're talking about the scale and numbers that we see and the rapidly growing disparity in wealth and inequality. The numbers become staggering and I think are also a point of pressure on that system, revealing not only the market failure, but revealing the inadequacy of philanthropy as a system and the way it's designed to even operate within those numbers. You've used pressure point before. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, one thing, I think there's an illuminating dynamic to it, that it can bring light to a system inefficiency or ineffectiveness, right? Just that pressure highlights the system. Yeah, definitely power for sure.
1: I mean, pressure is something. It's some form of accountability, I think is what you're saying. Yeah. And if you're talking about accountability, then what we're talking about is power. And power is often a word that's left out when you're talking about GDP. Yeah. Especially in the context of philanthropy. Right. So I think that in part, Raj's personal story is very much related to power dynamics and the fact Mm. that he never met his grandparents. Because they didn't live long enough to meet him, right? That, that suggests that they had a different quality of life, mm-hmm. and so there's part of the yeah. the power, the consequences. I think that power has the ability to shape outcomes, and specifically. Yeah. Power is responsible for consequences. Mm-hmm. Money can be power. Mm-hmm. There's lots of different forms of it. And I think when we're talking about philanthropy in this context, we are talking specifically about money and how it's applied yep. to solving big problems more than alleviating suffering like a charity.
0: But like, mm-hmm. we're also not talking sorry. about giving. No, no. Which is a core distinction as well. And something that we go into with Raj in his own experience giving in philanthropy. Is experienced the full range of that inside the sector of philanthropy, which I think is interesting. If we connect this back to Catherine and her recognition of
1: community-led solutions, the example she gave of the village in Vietnam where some of the children were positive deviants, quote unquote. Right. The moms were sneaking shrimp or something into their rice and that was changing Their health outcomes. outcomes. Yeah, right, right. And so we think about that being a better way than trying to just dump food into the system, which isn't sustainable anyway. So again, going back to community led initiatives, and this idea of power, some of the question is, how do you set the conditions for power building within Mm. communities? Because it's not, as you've said, only a matter of money when we were talking about some of the challenges that Wayne Clark is facing on a local level in West Oakland. It's also one of influence and power. and Who has the authority to make a decision about where those resources go?
0: Yeah, which makes me think of one of the final comments that Raj made around shifting power dynamics coming from the origin of philanthropy being about love. And it made me think of actually this quote, Philanthropy isn't about redemption of the giver, but the liberation of the receiver. That's Robert Egger. He's speaking from a really like charity perspective. One of the most basic needs, giving food, which I think does hold this sort of core philanthropic narrative, the ability to provide the most basic ongoing need. Working from that origin place, as Raj was talking about, he mentions shifting the power to be in a with power. And he talks about that in reference to the kind of selfless giving that's needed to be able to have that kind of perspective and take that kind of position as a philanthropist, which I think does start to at least shift some of the dynamics necessary for reform philanthropy, for generally starting to solve some of the pressing problems of our time. And shift the, the structure and nature of philanthropy itself. It's a relatively small step, and I don't think it solves the larger structural problems, but it feels like a pretty good place to start. It's so tricky to think of how
1: this has played out throughout the season with mm-hmm. Rachel D. and her portfolio in terms of representation from the people most impacted to lead yeah, and be in service of the people who are potentially experiencing the greatest consequences. So the economic fallout, people experiencing the greatest consequences, that would be like, oh goodness, migrant workers, women, indigenous communities, Mm -hmm. peasant farmers, urban poor. And it sounds good in theory, we're gonna level the playing field and we're gonna let people lead. In reality, they don't have the tools. Even if you were to give them the money, they still have to have tools and the training to know how the system works Wayne was really good about talking about what he knew and what he didn't know. And right. there were some things that he was just like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. and That's important. But he was curious and he was willing to learn. Mm-hmm. And so that's an opportunity. He's somebody who should be brought into that fold of power mm-hmm. and given an opportunity to learn about these things that he otherwise may be shot out of if he doesn't get an opportunity to learn about the system. Um, right. Because once he has had it, then he can be part of the forefront of that change. Mm-hmm. And he's already leading the change. It seems like Rachel does a bit of that with her portfolio. They spend a lot of time with their social entrepreneurs. Yeah. And they help to cultivate the leadership and provide the support. And they accept that sometimes just showing up in the room is as much as you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and other times, maybe you're going to really dig in and engage in some other way people need support. So I'm not playing devil's advocate. I'm just sort of saying like some of this is theoretical Mm -hmm. and there have to be ways of bringing people into the fold and empowering them and giving them access to the knowledge and the tools and the networks to make them
0: successful in those positions. Yeah. It's not a light switch. No. Yeah. You have to account for the Asymmetry is that exists in multiple generations sometimes, and that cannot be solved purely with money, at least not in an immediate timeline. And it can't be solved without a holistic approach. It needs to have the multiple kinds of support necessary for successful outcomes. It also makes me think
1: about the role of a just economy. Mm. Okay. Socially just economy. And I think that this is a great launching point into our bonus episode with Robbie Warren about his work with the Fair Work Foundation and the way that they are looking at organizing to build a more just economy. Mm -hmm. This is definitely one part of it.
0: Yeah, that obviously coincides with the idea at the top of our conversation around designing for a good society. Where do resources flow? Where do they get stuck? Where do they stockpile where they shouldn't? This is something that even economists are looking at more, right? This is this is something that is not just feel good, right? It's not just hypothetical, but it's
1: not just social good. Exactly. Right? You were talking about the rapid nature, and I think one of the things we went away from on that topic was the rapid nature is also another way of saying like there's some urgency here. Things are moving quickly, but there's also urgency because we're facing a climate emergency. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's yeah. not It's not just like maybe going to happen. It's like fire season in yep. California.
0: Yeah. We have been experiencing a global pandemic. Yeah. Um, these are big changes. The urgency is important for galvanizing bold action. And I think at the same time calling out the need for big-picture and long-term thinking. So while we want Mm -hmm. the bold action, we want things to address these urgent problems, we also want a better system. And the better system requires moving away from the short-term thinking that has often gotten us here, that looks at good systems.
1: I think what you're saying is consequences of a system that's marked by unrelenting growth Right. It's yeah. that short-term need growth and profit maximization mm-hmm. that has had specific effects. I'm looking at the global scale right now yeah. on informal and low wage work mm-hmm. in particular mm-hmm. that affects migrants and women and ethnic groups that bear a different kind of economic burden burden yeah. from this fallout. Yeah. And the financial insecurity putting people into survival mode. And that is never good. Right. That's one of those that causes conflict over resource scarcity. And things get very weird and violent. Mm -hmm. So I hear what you're saying. I, I do think that the short term thinking has to go. And part of that is this thought leadership change that's coming from the financial industry. You know, it started with the stakeholder roundtable into Jamie Dimon just in the last couple of weeks, putting emphasis on long term thinking yeah. for investments. Some of that's going to take the form of policy change. And that's OK. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. why policies can be changed.
0: Yeah. It also harkens back to our conversation with Catherine around systems change and the longer arc of systems change and the need for patience around application of different approaches. And so it's interesting to think about how to hold the urgency and the long-term thinking at the same time. It does require a certain kind of leadership. It does require a certain kind of perspective that I think is incredibly important right now that those who are in positions of decision-making can do that.
1: You mentioned Catherine there, and I feel like both Catherine and Raj are advocating for this. Catherine much more explicitly because of her role, but they both emphasize sort of breaking with that status quo and the silos that that we've talked about with almost all of our guests and building collaborative action. But more than that, with Catherine, she emphasized the need to support and learn from those on the forefront of change. And Raj is talking about that as well, but he addresses the business class and the philanthropists Mm. who have benefited from this market system. If you put them together and you get a more compassionate and a more holistic picture I love that their episodes are back to back because hopefully people are listening through. yeah, but I, I do think there's a impactful message there. And it's not as if we're starting from scratch. Some of this institutional knowledge is within reach of mm-hmm. this generation. Mm-hmm. And some of the other problems that are coming down the line are things that, We're not going to solve. We can plan for a more responsive system Mm -hmm. by designing in flexibility to respond and by addressing the things we know have concrete consequences. Short term thinking always has a consequence. Yeah. It's a shortcut.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I love that idea of designing for flexibility, designing for change as our status quo. That, that is our future. And no, we don't know what it all holds, but those are the things we do know. And we are at least responsible to that as we think about designing the system that hopefully can start to address some of these problems.
1: Oh, so much of
0: this is intentional and also unforeseen. Yeah. It's
1: not as if people set out To create some of these consequences, they just didn't anticipate them. Right. And that's part of the long term thinking and larger perceptual (laughs) muscles that we need to develop, but also thinking in terms of legacy and what's going to continue, what will reverberate long after we're gone? Mm. Like, what's the legacy we want to leave? And what's the consequence (laughs) and legacy we will leave? Mm. Because there's always two sides. Yeah. I've got to hope that the one we intend to leave outweighs the one that is unintentional or unforeseen. And that brings us back to values-based leadership and why we need to have values that guide our decisions. That's part of a building block for a thriving society. We're back to the beginning of systems, values, and skills. One of those skills is learn how to think long-term and be flexible. And recognize that even in the modern age, we still have to have
0: values, values that guide our decisions. This also makes me think of our upcoming material and what we're going to be exploring around civil society resiliency. What we're talking about is a plan for resiliency built into our system. That's the kind of flexibility we need to meet the changing need.
1: Thanks for joining us. I'm Joanne. And I'm Sarah. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and join
0: us for the next episode.